one of the things we need to do is to, to show how markets are compatible with the case for living in a virtuous society. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to top political and economic thinker. Today's question, can free markets make a comeback? In the aftermath of the Cold War, Francis Fukuyama famously wrote about the dominance of market economics and the end of history. But today that consensus is frayed, if not entirely disappeared. Liberal free marketers often find their ideas under attack, be it from the national conservative right or the socialist left. To discuss the state of free markets and the debates, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Samuel Gregg. He's a fellow in political economy at the American Institute of Economic Research, a contributing editor of Law and Liberty and a visiting scholar at the Heritage Foundation. He's also the author of a new book, The Next American Economy, Nation State Markets in in an Uncertain World. Um, And we're going to discuss some of the key themes of his book today on the podcast. Welcome. Matthew, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So you kind of open your book by discussing that there has been a a turn against free market liberalism. What do you think has kind of driven that sense? Well, there's what you might call long-term factors and there's short-term factors. So the long-term factor is, I think it's fair to say that the the victory that those of us who believe in free markets um, often talked about from the 1980s onwards, where we saw a certain shift back towards markets, et cetera, well, I think we've discovered that the the free market revolution plainly didn't go as far as many people thought. At least rhetorically, it was it was very it was very expressive and all that. But in terms of actual policies, I think it's fair to say that the success was more limited. The second thing, the, the size of the was, state didn't actually decline as much under Thatcher and Reagan right. as people think. It's right, it, right, it, and it, the same with Margaret Thatcher. The state, the state proportion of GDP did not decline on, under Margaret Thatcher. So there's a long-term uh, trend, I think, that we 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 need to be attentive to. That the march towards more government control of the economy um, was staunched, if you like, but saying it was reversed—that's a different subject altogether. Uh, then I also think there's other long-term trends. For example, in the United States, there's always been um, some people on the right who have been very skeptical about markets. I think you find that uh, maybe even more pronounced in uh, continental Europe, but it's also a phenomenon that marks some parts of the Anglo-American world, uh, the United States, Britain, Australia, etc. There have always been some conservatives who have been uh, more skeptical about markets. <clears throat> And they've experienced a type of resurgence in the past uh, seven years. And you can even go back to 1993 when Pat Buchanan emerged to challenge President George W. Bush. And he ran very much on a program, an economic program that looked suspiciously like that of economic nationalism today. And he got a lot of support. Um, But then there are also more immediate factors. And even though the financial crisis happened 15 years ago now, I don't think Uh, we've really recovered in terms of being able to present a very positive case for markets. Because I happen to think that the financial crisis, uh, the government played, whether in terms of bad monetary policy, uh, lousy housing policy in the United States, all sorts of different factors that were very much government related. I think those 
were precipitating factors for most of the problems associated with the financial crisis. But unfortunately, we free marketers lost that debate, at least in terms of the public mindset. If you ask most people today about the financial crisis, they'll say excessive capitalism, market liberalization gone awry, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the facts, I think, are very different. But unfortunately, we lost that argument in the public square and the public mind. And that's made it much harder to make the case for markets in a post-financial crisis world. And then, of course, I, I think uh, post-financial crisis, we've also seen such tumultuous political times that have given a lot of um, energy to those on the right who might not necessarily be particularly pro-market, the likes of Trump or some who like to use Brexit to say that you know there's a need for more government redistribution. Just this week in the UK, there's another debate about levelling up funding, this idea that the government can solve regional inequalities by doling out money um, left, right and centre. And I think you've got a there's similar narrative in the US where there's on the political right in particular, there's a sense in which, well, we need to do something for the new kind of working class conservatives who are at least the, the narrative goes, demanding a larger state and more intervention. So I think we, we see that in, in the US, it's called uh, national conservatism, um, uh, quite often comes out into the fore in these debates. Yes, I think that's right. So if you look at the national conservative movement in the United States, it's not that they're socialists. It's not that they're uh, calling for massive nationalizations of things. What they're turning to are things like uh, a, a wider use of tariffs when it comes to trade issues. And we'll get to talk about China because I think China's part of the, the equilibrium here. But the second thing that they turn to is what we call industrial policy, which is selective interventions by the state into different sectors of the economy with the assumption being that the government can somehow engineer better outcomes than would be delivered by markets. And industrial policy has made quite a comeback among some people on the right over the past seven years. In fact, there are entire groups of conservatives in America now who are arguing for these types of things. <clears throat> and often it's partly an economic argument, but they're also arguing that this is necessary in order to achieve certain social ends. So you mentioned uh, blue collar conservatives. There's a sense among some conservatives in America that blue collar working class has been left behind. I happen to think that that's empirically a problematic claim. Nonetheless, that's a perception that prevails. <clears throat> they also argue that certain types of industrial policy are necessary if you're going to maintain things like family stability, for example, or to have, get people to have more children. And <clears throat> those arguments are very persuasive to many people on the right because they appeal to um, the type of conservative who prioritizes stability over things like change and ne sometimes necessary change. So um, some of these political dynamics are working their way through American politics right now. And I think it's fair to say that at least in the United States, there's a real division now about the place of markets, the role of the state, and the proper stance that American conservatives should adopt towards the market economy. And I, I, I try to basically in my book, The Next American Economy, I try to really explain how this has happened 
some of the problems, I think, that with the arguments that are being advanced by some people mm. among the national conservative crowd. But I also try to outline a different positive vision that I think tries to yeah. take account and acknowledges <clears throat> that certainly, at least on the rhetorical level, I think free marketers in America made some mistakes when selling the case for markets to the American people. So, so we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic in the UK where there are kind of segments on the right who will advocate for a more kind of interventionist uh, set of policies for some of the reasons you've you've just expressed. Um, at the same time, though, it's it's not quite as mainstream, but you do have the situation where you have a slightly more murky outcome where pretty much a lot of MPs, including quite senior government MPs from, from the Prime Minister down, will say, I'm pro-enterprise, I'm pro-markets, I consider myself a free market conservative. But they'll be revealed by their actions as doing quite the opposite. They'll be revealed by their actions of uh, putting up the UK's taxes to the highest in over 70 years, um, introducing all sorts of new regulations, left, right and centre. It's very much, I'm a free market, but... Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the but is is the emphasis here. Uh, but I think in the US it's kind of interesting because there is more of an explicit willingness to, to throw off the free market label that many Tories in the UK at least kind of hold on rhetorically to the free market label if they don't act on it. Yes, I think that's a, that's a good comparison because in the United States we see <clears throat> senior Republican figures both in the Senate and in the Congress uh, arguing for things like industrial policy Chinese style. Um, and it's fascinating, I think, because many of the proposals that they're articulating are wrapped up in two things. One is they invoke this lang language of market fundamentalism. This is a, a phrase you hear all the time from a good number of uh, people on the right that somehow free marketers reduce everything to economics, everything is a matter of the, of, of the market, and they're unable to see beyond that. Well. Last time I checked, I didn't see uh, "quote unquote" market fundamentalists <laughs> running any particular presidential administration for a very long period of time, if ever. But it's also a very clever rhetorical device that tries to fit up, I think, those of us who favour markets with a type of image which I think is is simply completely removed from reality. So there's a rhetorical war going on. But I also think you're right when you say that. Many uh, American people, figures on the right, they're basically extremely critical of markets. They won't quite say we need to abandon markets. We need to go back to, I don't know, some sort of neo-Keynesian arrangement of 1950s America or something like that. But they are much more forward in, willing, in their willingness to use the government, particularly the federal government and the administrative state, to achieve any number of ends. And one of the arguments I've heard is that <clears throat> you hear some people on the right say, well, we've spent the past 60 years trying to dismantle the administrative state. We've failed. So basically, we should take the administrative state and use it to achieve our own particular ends. So there's a type of means means ends logic that's starting to get a grip upon among some people on the right in the United States. It's also curious because when you look at some of their economic positions, you discover that there's some interesting parallels on the left. So take, for example, Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, who is seen pretty much as a, a, a pretty conservative politician on the right. But if you compare his economic proposals 
many of which involve extensive use of industrial policy, having the government involved in uh, any number of different exercises. His positions are not that much different from the positions being articulated by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's generally regarded as being on the left of the Democratic Party. They both want tariffs. They both want industrial policy. They both want, uh, quote, workers, quote, in other words, trade union officials sitting mm -hmm. on the boards of companies, et cetera. So there's, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that's opening up that crisscrosses party lines in the United States right now. And it reflects the fact that some people on the right are moving to much closer towards uh, a, a very interventionist understanding of what they think government should be doing vis-a-vis -vis the economy. Yeah, you, I think you you linked this together under the the headline state capitalism, which is which is more or less what both sections of the right and the left are trying to achieve. I'm mean, just going through some of the more specific arguments there. So the, the the first one you bring up is in respect to protectionism. So this is the you know, age old debate about whether or not it's necessary to protect uh, domestic industry. Um, I think this has been given renewed energy by the the risk to. Um, the global economy and, and global security posed by China, also potentially risks posed by by Russia, in uh, more in the in the European context when it comes to energy. And um, why is this not then a time to take, I suppose, a more closed approach to the world? Should mm -hmm. should the US and the UK not be kind of locking ourselves off from China, ensuring more domestic production, uh, ensuring our supply chains are secure, et cetera, et cetera? Why, why isn't that not the right response to to these issues? Well, I think we need to separate some things out. So when we look at something like protectionism in the form of tariffs and um, export controls, et cetera, all the import controls, all those sorts of things, um, the thing that's important to keep in mind is that those measures hurt the, the citizens of the country that is imposing them just as much as they purport to hurt the, the people or the regime of another country that you don't like or you think has become a danger to national security. Because tariffs, as we know, introduce and encourage and incentivize inefficiencies. Um, it's just, it, it facilitates cronyism in the economy. It reduces competitiveness. In other words, it causes some major economic headaches uh, down the line, as well as some seriously uh, dysfunctional political outcomes in the form of what we call cronyism. So that's one set of issues I think is it's very clear. And uh, I think that <clears throat> those of us who favor free trade, when I talk about these things, I will often say, look, I'm in favor of free trade because I think it helps America. I'm not here to talk about some sort of global world order that <laughs> is inevitably going to come about uh, as a consequence of trade liberalization, which was sort of an argument that was floating around some sections of the right in the early 1990s because of partly because of a book you mentioned right at the beginning, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. Now, the second thing I think we need to think about is that <clears throat> free traders have always acknowledged, always acknowledged, going back as far as Adam Smith, that national security concerns trump um, a free trade arguments. Um, Adam Smith acknowledged this, free marketers have always acknowledged this. But they've also pointed out that national security claims can become a wedge by which any number of businesses and sectors of the economy will start claiming privileges because they somehow are absolutely necessary for the national security of the United Kingdom or the national security of the United States. And it becomes a means by which 
many businesses and indeed entire sectors of the economy start to extract privileges from the state, which doesn't enhance national security and also enhances uh, some serious economic inefficiencies within the, the country itself. And it's so, effectively a, a, a pretty similar situation when it comes to industrial policy, which is yes, you see certain interests exactly. trying to trying to empower themselves. I, I was interested um, by your response to some of the the oft heard examples of successful industrial policy, the likes of the mm. ARPANET leading to the internet, or state sponsored um, efforts and technologies and science leading to the iPhone. Um, it, it seems like there is a bit of moving. In, in fact, the, the UK is. Uh, adopting a kind of ARPA-esque model for science funding. And there are many people on the right who are sympathetic to that on a, in a pro-innovation way, some who might not even be protectionists who are just kind of pro-innovation. Um, why, why is industrial policy not uh, something that, that you would support? Well, uh, um, <clears throat> that's something I've written a great deal about both in the book, but in the lead up to the book, that was one of the major debates I've been involved in for quite some time. Um, Industrial policy suffers from all sorts of problems. One, of course, is the knowledge problem. The state simply can't know what's likely to be the, the best thing that's going to happen in the next few years. Uh, they can't possibly, the state can't know all the different factors that will go into creating something that's new and innovative. Um, the state has a very lousy track record of doing these things. Um, uh, uh, in the case that you mentioned of the internet, making the connection between specific government policies and specific outcomes in the economy is pretty much, um, in terms of industrial policy, pretty much impossible. So there's a cause effect problem that they, they have difficulty overcoming and certainly explaining. And of course, it's also, it's also um, industrial policy gets captured very, very quickly by any number of interest groups. Uh, and I, I cite some examples in the book, um, the Solyndra case, which was a environmentally green company that was promoted mm. by just, the just, just this week in the UK, we we have something called British Vault, which is a was a, right. a battery um, maker that, that was trying to establish itself in the UK, got a chunk of government money, and it's just gone bust uh, very right. famously. Right, and it, the other the, so there's there's numerous examples of this, and. Um, industrial policy has an extremely poor track record at delivering the results that it claims. And it also has this effect of crowding out entrepreneurs. And it also encourages people to become political entrepreneurs rather than trying to create goods and services that they think people, the consumers, in other words, might watch. And it, it introduces all sorts of political dysfunctionalities um, into the political system. So <clears throat> I think there's very good reasons to be extremely wary of industrial policy, both on economic grounds, but um, political grounds as well. And when it comes to something like China, what I, a great example is um, the semiconductor argument that we're having right now. So there's lots of uh, Europeans and Americans saying, we need to have the government set these things up and we need the government to create these factories and so that we can compete with those commies in China. Okay, well, um, uh, the, the whole fuss about semiconductors didn't really become very apparent until uh, really 2018, 2019. But in the United States, American companies were already starting to build and create um, factories and businesses that build and create semiconductors long before, long before uh, government officials and politicians started angsting about this. 
they saw an opportunity, they saw, a, um, they saw a, a place whereby they thought they could compete in the marketplace with foreign companies that were already producing these sorts of things. In other words, they did this a long time before government officials began talking about this as a particular type of problem. In other words, markets are often uh, usually much better at responding to these types of things if they're given the freedom to do so. Mm. And the last thing well, I'll say about China in, in that particular uh, semiconductor debate is that a lot of it is actually trying to um, uh, diversify away from Taiwan. And if any, if anything, yes. you know, some, some level of dependency interconnection with Taiwan is a big disincentive for, for China to invade Taiwan. And, and the last thing we want to do is, is leaving, leave Taiwan out to dry by cutting off our economic connections with them. So it, it seems like a well, weird debate when we're not actually dependent on China for microchips. Uh, we're right, not dependent right. on uh, so right. well, fact, China, some, some would China say a, a, a separate country. Yes, and China is considerably behind the United States when it comes to semiconductor production and um, efficiency and technology. The, the, but let's, I mean, the China thing I think is important because um, uh, there is this argument that's often you hear on the right, but now on the left as well, that we uh, China means we need to be industri adopting industrial policy, tariffs, protectionism, et cetera, because China is a serious problem. Well, I agree, China is a serious problem, given the nature of the regime, and given the way that Xi is behaving, given the things, his very stated ambitions of what he wants to achieve for China. I don't doubt that China is a ge geopolitical challenge for the West. But it also seems to me that slapping tariffs on China or trying to adopt industrial policy as a way of um, responding to China is to adopt policies that have failed comprehensively um, in terms of spurring forward economic development. And the other thing that's happening, of course, is that lots of um, American companies, I'm sure European and British companies are also doing the same thing, they're already leaving China. They don't need to be incentivized to do so by the government because conditions for uh, foreign investment, foreign companies in China are becoming worse every day. Private property rights um, were always very fragile and now are basically disrespected. You can't assume that you'll be left alone by the government. The people that you're entering into contracts with in Chinese companies, you can be sure are members of the Communist Party and are following the line of Xi when it comes to what he thinks Chinese companies, how they should be operating. And one of the beauties of um, open trade is that companies can get up and simply leave relatively effectively. And they can even move to countries that have good relationships with Western nations and where they don't have to worry about the types of serious disincentives that exist with, when you're living and working in an economy in which is becoming more and more corporatist and status every day, like China. And, but so, so when we look at these things, and, and I think the China case exemplifies this, many of these questions ha have important nuances that our NatCon friends and economic nationalists in general, I think, tend to slide over. They tend to ignore these types of things. And they're looking for almost sort of one-shot solutions that will instantly fix some of these problems. And there's a, there's a type of suspicion of bottom-up solutions, which markets are very good, if they're allowed to do so, at delivering. And there's a sense that we need to be in charge so that we can deliver these particular outcomes. It's a mentality that has long been on the left, but now has resurfaced on parts of the right. So kind of moving on to your more kind of positive case for, mm. for market liberalism, entrepreneurialism, 
uh, ensuring a, a kind of positive regulatory institutional cultural environment. Um, what are the, the key features that can ensure that prosperity? So obviously, there's, there seems to be a lot of attraction, a lot of energy around the kind of national conservatism um, movement at the moment, especially since it can align itself with some of the, the socialist left. What is what is mm. the way to contend and respond to that and, and I suppose, make the case for a resurgence of, of liberal market ideas? Well, I think um, <clears throat> there's uh, there's there's an economic and empirical set of arguments that need to be made, but there's also some philosophical and political arguments that need to be made. And I often think that those of us who favour markets are pretty good at the economic and empirical side, but we're we've not always been so good on the philosophical on and political side. Certainly, in terms of selling many of these ideas to broader audiences. So one of the things I try and, and do in the book is I talk about the sorts of things you need to do if you need to revive entrepreneurship. America remains the world's most entrepreneurial economy. It seems to be part of the American bloodstream, but entrepreneurship is declining in the United States. And we need to be asking ourselves some serious questions. Why? And I, and I explain in the book why, why I think some of these things are happening. Too much regulation, not enough, not enough capital, and America needs more immigrants, that's, that's very clear. Um, I also talk about the need to revive competition and how America has slipped precipitously when it comes to competition vis-a-vis -vis even many Western European continental countries that you or I would regard as basically sort of European, standard European social democracy. Some of these countries are more competitive than the United States, that's got to change. Um, and when it comes to trade, I think we need to, America needs to engage, re-engage, with the trade liberalization agenda, but being more cognizant and more, let's call it realistic about some of the geopolitical challenges that are associated with that, but which have always been associated with trade, right? Because trade by definition, it enters immediately into some of these geopolitical questions and it's very difficult to separate out from that. But that doesn't mean you can't pursue a, a pretty aggressive trade liberalization agenda. But here's the thing, you need to sell all these things, at least in the case of America, you need to sell these things as being good for the country, as good for Americans. Because I think that certainly in the 1990s, there was a tendency of some free marketers, not all, but some free marketers, <clears throat> to couch many of these arguments for trade liberalization, uh, for more competition, more entrepreneurship, in a type of sort of borderless world utopia uh, rhetoric. And, and Fukuyama, there was some of that that was going on with him, I think, and some other free market people. And I think that um, if you go back and you look at some of the, the, the real founders of this tradition, people like, say, for example, Adam Smith, Adam Smith was not a one world border, borderless uh, planet guy, not at all. He thought the nation was here to stay and it was very important for free marketers to think about that type of reality when they're advancing their arguments. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a case for giving up the market, it's a case for advancing the argument, being cognizant of that we're not living in the 1980s anymore. And I think there's, a, there's an older generation of free marketers who sort of look back to that as a golden time, which you and I just, said right at the beginning, wasn't quite as golden as, as perhaps some people think it was. It was good, but it wasn't as good as some people think it was. And we need to be fitting up free market arguments, the same principles and ideas for 2020s realities. And in the case of so, America, so go ahead. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of interested here in unpacking some, I both, I guess there's, there's two elements here. One is a philosophical element. So I think that mm. there is a decent kind of, you know, moral utilitarian case that, 
um, we should consider everyone to be absolutely equal in, in terms of our value to them. So when you think about immigration, you should think uh, about the benefits to the immigrants and not just the benefits domestically. But I think at the same time, politically, that doesn't tend to be quite as an effective an argument. Um, right. I think on top of that, though, you, you can probably make a, some kind of a moral philosophical liberal market case for the nation state, which is that if you want to be able to manage um, a liberal market economy, you need, uh, you know, as much as we often spend our time, you know, mocking and making fun of the government, you do need a government, you do need things like the rule of law, um, you, you need a, right. a system in which people have a certain level of trust for each other, and that might require a sense of identity and connection amongst and, and between people. And so in some ways, a, a liberal market system is built on the nation state, uh, as much as it also likes to engage with other nation states through free trade, mm -hmm. it, 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 it exists um, within a certain uh, institutional context, I guess. So, yes, and that's, that's of, pretty much the I, argument that Adam Smith was making back in um, this 18th century. He said that, you know, our sympathy, what he called our sympathy for others, once you get to beyond the level of the nation, it gets harder to sort of feel, forge real connections in the way that Americans feel with Americans or people in Britain feel with Britain, et cetera. So I think, so there's, there's a type of case for that that doesn't involve state worship or anything like that, let alone um, um, sorts of ethno-nationalism that can become deeply problematic. But it is possible to be patriotic and to believe in things like free trade and economic liberalization. I think there's a very strong tradition of that in the 19th century. Um, people um, in 19th century, let's call it 19th century liberal Britain, didn't see themselves as being somehow unpatriotic because they favored free trade. On the contrary, they, they said, this is good. We, we're expanding. We're sending British goods and British services and British manufacturing around the world. This is good. We should be proud of these sorts of things. There's not, an, there's not a sort of sense of, well, being in favor of free markets and free trade means that you sort of diminish those types of connections. But I also think one of the things we need to do is to, to show how markets are compatible with a moral, uh, the case for living in a virtuous society. Um, and you find again, some of these things in Adam Smith, when he talked about these, these particular things, especially in his theory of moral sentiments. He talks about benevolence, he talks about classical virtues, he talks about commercial virtues. And he says, all these things are necessary and present in a dynamic commercial society. And that it's possible to achieve all sorts of very good forms of human flourishing in the conditions of a commercial society. That is not just a utility exercise. Utility is important. Utility maximization is significant. But the moral life goes, includes that, but it also goes beyond that as well. And maybe that's something that those of us who believe in markets, um, we need to get better at articulating. And we have a very strong tradition of that, by the way, as well. And I think in many cases, it's a, it's a question of rediscovering those traditions. Yeah, I think it's it's very easy to get stuck up on the the very strong uh, ec economic utility arguments for free markets without necessarily focusing on what that that prosperity and, and opportunity can can mean in, in terms of people's individual right. lives and the, and the value it provides to them. I mean, I think I might leave it there and thank you so much, uh, Sammy Reg, for for joining the IA podcast. For those who are interested in learning more, Sam does have a new book out, uh, The Next American Economy, Nation, State and Markets in an Uncertain World. For those who are enjoying the IA's content, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or on our YouTube channel. Um, you can support the IA by visiting iea.org.uk and please tune in again next week.